Good morning and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, January 8th, 2017. The share ID for Friday, January 6th is 9458. That's 9458. Today, A Vision for You presents, We Had to Concede to Our Innermost Selves. Step one states, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Unless we humble ourselves by taking this step, we don't need the rest of the program. All of us have come to Overeaters Anonymous as a result of the frustration and despair we experienced in our disease of compulsive overeating. Beaten into a state of reasonableness, we come to the realization that we are doomed. This experience of powerlessness becomes the driving force of desperation to be ready and willing to do anything which will free us from the bondage of our affliction. Joining us today is Joe M., a recovered compulsive overeater from Minnesota. Joe is dedicated to the 12-step way of life and to carrying this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Welcome this morning, Joe. Good morning, Leah. Can you hear me okay? Yes, well. Hello, everyone. My name is Joe. I'm a compulsive overeater, and I'm very glad to be with you. I am going to talk about step one, but first I need to share my history with you so you can have confidence that I am one of you. I remember being six years old at my birthday party and feeling overwhelmed at all the strange kids in my living room who I don't remember knowing. I snuck away by myself into the dining room to eat a party snack as a way of coping with my feelings of not wanting to feel overwhelmed. By the time I was eight years old, I believe compulsive overeating had taken hold in my life and it would never leave again. In grade school, most of my overeating was at meals. We had plenty to eat in my home and our meals were robust, enabling me to have second portions of whatever I wanted. I remember one time bringing home leftover food from a campfire girl event and happily eating it one to two days later in the secrecy of my bedroom. I was nine. I remember another time hiding a popcorn ball under my pillow, and at bedtime I took it out to eat the rest. I had extra weight on me for much of my grade school years, which tells me that I was chronically overeating. When I entered junior high, this condition got worse. I started obsessing about food when it wasn't in front of me. I remember being in seventh grade in science class in the morning, looking out over the sunny field outside the window and making a resolution that when I got home from school six hours later, I would only have a piece of fruit for a snack. But when I got home, I never could keep that resolution. And I was always looking for something more exciting than fruit. I did a lot of babysitting uh, as a teenager, and my babysitting clients always had the good stuff, the snacks, the party food, the sugary, salty, flowery food that satisfied my cravings. I looked forward to when the kids would go to bed so I could binge without them seeing me. I used to be a figure skater, and I would get snacks out of the skating rink vending machine. And, of course, the vending machines had all the good stuff, 
And for a while on Sundays, my siblings and I went to church with my grandmother. I loved my grandmother and wanted to be with her. And she would always take us out to McDonald's afterward, where I would always get a cheeseburger and french fries. And I so looked forward to that, sitting there in the pews, looking forward to it ahead of time. In high school, my eating got progressively worse. I was now shoplifting several times a week to get my fix. The only thing I ever shoplifted was food. I would steal food that was made of sugar, flour, fat, and salt, or any combination of those. I got to be pretty good at it, and I would walk out of stores with the food in my school folder, my skating rink bag or purse, and then shove it in. I did this at grocery stores, convenience stores, and department stores. I got a job at a fast food joint, and I can't tell you how many times I stole food when the manager wasn't looking. I had long passed the point of only overeating at meals. Now I was looking for food throughout the day. In college, my eating got still worse. I took full advantage of the all-you-can-eat meal plan, made frequent trips to the convenience store across the street from my dorm, availed myself of the vending machines throughout campus, made air-popped popcorn in my dorm room, went with my friends to the overnight donut shop where they sold items out their back door while they were baking for the day. After college, my eating got still worse. I had a designated binge night by this point, which was Saturday night. I worked until noon on Saturdays, got off work, went to the grocery store, loaded up on all my favorite binge foods, went home, threw everything in the fridge or on the couch, took a nap, got up around 4 o'clock, and proceeded to binge for the next 7 to 8 hours. I did this every week. Quantity was becoming a more important part of my eating. A little more than one year after graduating from college, I was heavier than I had ever been, and I was appalled, but that didn't stop my eating. As the years went on, the eating got still worse, so that eventually I was binging every day and every night. I would stay in bed in the morning as late as I possibly could, suffering with a food hangover from the previous night's binge. I would get up, jump in the shower, and run out the door, never eating breakfast because I was too hungover. I'd worked for a few hours, and then at about 2 o'clock, I would start to feel the second layer of the food hangover taking hold, and it would feel worse. My stomach would churn, my head would get hot, and I didn't want to tolerate that. So I'd go to the convenience store in the building where I worked and get a sandwich and instant soup and some sugary, floury substance and eat all that. Then I would get off work in the evening, and my real eating would start. I'd go to fast food joints, grocery stores, delis, movie theaters, gas stations, and load up on my binge foods. I had stashes of food in my car, in my purse, in my dresser drawer, under my bed. I couldn't see the floor of the back seat of my car because it was covered with food packages. I remember going to work on the weekends and going to the grocery store ahead of time to load up on my binge foods and then at the start of my shift reaching down and touching the top of the grocery bag at my desk knowing that I would be okay because I had my binge foods with me. My desperation and volume of eating was growing. I remember one time going to the movies and buying a whole pound of candy and eating that whole thing plus a large popcorn and I was so painfully hung over the next day that I laid on the bathroom floor of my employer, writhing around, feeling like I would vomit. Sometimes I would binge so hard 
that I couldn't eat anything the next day and just had hot tea all day as if recovering from an illness. I remember one weekend when I binged on a Saturday night, and on Sunday I was so hungover, I laid in bed until 10 o'clock that night. I just could not rouse myself. At the bottom of my eating, I weighed 254 pounds. That's 120 pounds heavier than I am now. I had no enjoyment in my life. The only time I felt alive was when my entertainment magazine came in the mail, and that gave me 20 minutes of pleasure. I couldn't move very easily. I couldn't get in and out of bed easily, go up and down stairs easily, or run when I was in a hurry. I couldn't even walk across a floor without being out of breath. I worried about my health, and I felt guilty for what I was doing to my body. I worried I was creating cavities in my teeth because of all the sugar. I worried about heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. I worried about falling because my obese body threw off my balance. I had gone on many diets over the years, starting when I was nine years old. I went to two paid weight loss programs and an outpatient eating disorders clinic. I tried controlled eating many, many times by containing the volume of food, eating only at mealtimes, and avoiding all the so-called bad foods, all the foods that I really enjoyed binging on. At times, I had hope with these methods, as I was able to occasionally lose all my excess weight. But the time would always come, either slowly or quickly, when I would go back into the food, gain all the weight back that I had lost, plus more. At one point, I distinctly remember giving up the dieting altogether. I was in my early 30s. I just didn't want to go on that merry-go-round anymore. I didn't have a solution for my problem, but I knew by that point, dieting wasn't it. This addiction really had me beat. I identify with Bill W. in his story in the big book where he says on page 8, No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. Food had become my master. I was utterly miserable without food. But with food, I was demoralized, physically compromised, and mentally underfunctioning. In this desperate, defeated place, I came to Overeaters Anonymous, where I found people who were just like me and did what I did with food. I was so relieved and moved to find you, other human beings who knew exactly where I was coming from when I said I had eaten in bathroom stalls, picked food out of the garbage to eat, ate food off the floor, stale, burnt, and frozen. I was finally in a room of other people who had also been betrayed by diets and for whom lonely willpower was something we could openly talk about. But pretty soon, it became clear that the social support I found in OA would not be enough for me to move out of active overeating and into recovery. It took a few years and some relapse to wake up to that fact. I was introduced to the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous in Overeaters Anonymous, 
and less than a year after I started reading the big book, I began my big book journey with a recovered sponsor. My life has not been the same since. My abstinence date is November 10, 2009. I am maintaining a healthy weight and have a 120-pound weight loss. I don't obsess about food today. I don't feel deprived. I'm happy about my recovery today. And this brings me to the subject of my talk. I have been asked to speak on step one. We admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. I knew there was something about me that couldn't handle food, but I didn't know what that was. In OA and through the big book, I have learned. When I went for the food, I was always going for certain ingredients, sugar, flour, fat, salt, and volume, and any combination of those things. If a food didn't have any of my trigger ingredients, I either left it alone or made up for it by consuming large quantities of it. I would hunt in my cupboards for certain salty snacks and was always disappointed when all I found, for instance, was raw nuts with no sugar, salt, or oil on them. What's the point of that, I thought. They did nothing for me. They were not exciting in any way. But I would eat them because there was nothing else to eat. Over all the years I was binging, those four ingredients, sugar, flour, fat, and salt, plus volume, were my specialty. In the doctor's opinion in the big book, Dr. William Silkworth writes, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. I like the effect I get when I eat sugar, especially when it is mixed with flour and fat. I also like flour and salt, sugar and fat, and various combinations. My body becomes extremely charged when I consume these foods. I get high. Thousands of times I had this experience, and over the years, my body demanded more of these trigger foods with each passing year. I remember toward the end of my eating, taking the first bite of sugar and feeling like someone had turned a light switch on in my head, and I would lurch back in the seat of my car almost as if I was having a seizure. This was a physical response. And once I took that first bite of a trigger food, my body demanded more, so I gave it more, and there was nothing I could do about this. I was powerless over my physical response. The doctor's opinion says these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all and that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. The doctor describes this phenomenon as an allergy to convey the unusual physical response to the substance. I identify with what the doctor says about alcoholics because I do with food what they do with alcohol. When I withdraw from these particular foods, I get very physically anxious, which I can now identify as physical withdrawal. Dr. Silkworth writes, they are restless, irritable, and discontented 
unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking a few drinks. I got a sense of ease and comfort by taking a few bites, and once I took those few bites, I couldn't stop. My body demanded that I have more, and so I ate more until I couldn't stuff any more in. The doctor says, I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. And the writers of the big book say, we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. Why? Why is it that taking just one bite of sugar is such a problem? Lots of people can take just one bite. The difference is that they can stop. Their bodies are not sickened. My body is different than a normal eater. Any amount of my trigger substances, including too much volume, triggers a physical response that I cannot stop. It overwhelms me. It takes me over. And the resulting consequences are very painful for me. When I would abstain from my trigger foods and I got past the point of withdrawal, and I was not having cravings, I was still not okay. And this is the second part of my addiction. I fantasized about the foods I wasn't eating. I would stare at people who were eating them. My mind was like a beehive buzzing around constantly with the noise of a fixation, mentally fixated on the vision of foods I wanted but wasn't eating. These thoughts consumed me. It was an obsession. The chapter more about alcoholism in the big book lays out the nature of powerlessness and how we are without defense against the first bite, even when we are abstinent. More about alcoholism affirms and reinforces my experience. I look at my history and apply it to this chapter, and it fits. I find myself in here. On page 30, it says, we are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. That's me. It always got worse. When I was a kid, I was pudgy. When I was 19, I was 20 pounds overweight. By the time I was 33, I was 120 pounds overweight reflecting the progressive nature of my overeating condition. Also on page 30, it says, the idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. Every time I went on a diet, and every time I tried some form of controlled eating, I wished with all my heart that I could both control and enjoy my eating. But as I've heard in the rooms, when I controlled it, I didn't enjoy it, and when I enjoyed it, I couldn't control it. How does the big book describe powerlessness? In the chapter, There is a Solution, on page 21, it says, but what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker, He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker, but at some stage of his drinking career, 
he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. On page 22, we know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens, both in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. On page 23 and the top of page 24, he has lost control. At a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. On page 24, our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. The entire chapter, More About Alcoholism, is all about the nature of powerlessness and contains many passages about it, such as on page 30, no real alcoholic ever recovers control. We are like men who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. On page 31, there is no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. Page 33, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Page 34, This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it, this utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. I had the necessity. I was 120 pounds overweight. Certainly, that would make one think that there was a necessity to leave it alone, to leave the excess food alone. And I certainly had the wish. I was unhappy in my situation. I was desperate. I had the wish, but I couldn't leave it alone. Page 37, there was always the curious mental phenomenon that, parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. I remember being in college and having controlled my eating for a while and getting down to a normal weight. And I remember walking in the basement of my dorm room, walking by the vending machine. Suddenly the thought occurred to me that I could just have one candy bar. So I went and had that candy bar. And I don't know what happened after that, but what I can tell you is that a year later I was heavier than ever. The insane idea won out. Page 37, there was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be. It did not matter how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times I had woken up suffering from a food hangover. By the time that binge food was in front of me again, all the thought of all the misery was completely blocked out as I picked up that food. No, there was no serious or effective thought for me what the terrific consequences were going to be for me. Page 38, however intelligent we may have been in other respects, where alcohol has been involved, we have been strangely insane. Yes, I was intelligent in other respects. I could read, I could write, I could hold down a job, 
I had won awards in my chosen profession. I interacted with very intelligent, successful people in the course of my work over the years. I thought of myself as intelligent. I could think in a rational way in many ways. But that didn't matter when it came to my food. It's like my intellect went way out the window when it came to my overeating. Page 39, the actual or potential alcoholic, with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. I had self-knowledge. I had gone to therapy and I had gained self-knowledge in therapy and therapy was very helpful to me and it was very important in my life. And at the same time, no amount of therapy, no matter how good it was, ever stopped me from compulsive overeating. And in fact, I remember there were times when after particularly cathartic therapy sessions, I would go out and eat afterward to, in my mind, comfort myself. I had other areas of self-knowledge. I remember writing in my journal in 1990, oh, and realizing I keep extra weight on myself to keep men away. Now, that might have been true, but that self-knowledge, that didn't stop me from overeating. And I had other areas of self-knowledge as well. I remember realizing, you know, I say no to myself in all these other ways, but food is the one way I say yes to myself, and that's why I overeat. Well, you know, maybe there was some merit to that, but that didn't stop me from the overeating. The chapter more about alcoholism also lays out what it means to admit powerlessness. On page 30, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. This came in layers for me, this concession to my innermost self. I remember one time going to a bread store, a, um, it was a... Uh, not a, it was like it was like a bakery specializing in bread products not specializing in sweet products but bread products and i remember and i was in oa at the time and i remember that i knew that sugar was a problem for me and i was doing the best i could to abstain from sugary items and i went into this bread store and i was looking at i was looking at everything they had and i was thinking about what i was going to get and then it hit me oh my god this is flour. I'm going after flour. Oh, my God. Flour is a problem for me. And the overwhelming sense of consciousness, the overwhelming sober feeling, it's hard for me to describe in words, but it was very powerful. And it took me another six months to realize and to really accept that flour was a problem for me. But it was an inner it was it was an inner concession. And that was true for my other step one experiences as well. I conceded to myself. And my experience was that my con- the concession was not verbal. I wasn't using words to do this. And I was solitary. I mean, I wasn't communicating it to anybody else. Um, I either wasn't in the presence of other people, or if I was in the presence of other people, I wasn't interacting with them about this topic, about this reality for me. 
That was my experience. So I conceded to my innermost self. I didn't have to be at an OA meeting. I didn't have to be reading the literature. I didn't have to be on the phone with my sponsor or with anybody else in the program. I really just had to be with myself in order to make this concession. And this delusion, you know, this delusion that I'm like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. I mean, what that means for me is that, you know, when I see a normal eater walking into a deli and spontaneously ordering something, that's not something I can do. I mean, so much of what normal eaters do, I just cannot do that. I mean, my history has shown that I cannot do that. So for me, I I have needed to get to the point where I truly see that I'm in this different group of people as it pertains to eating. Normal eaters, are it's like there are two circles. There's normal eaters and compulsive overeaters. And compulsive overeaters never get to go back to the other circle. I'm in this circle permanently. So it says, you know, the delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe, meaning like any time in the future, I'm never going to be a normal eater. And then uh, the big book also says, if we are planning to stop drinking, in my case overeating, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol, that someday I will be immune to my binge foods. I no longer entertain the thought that someday I will be able to handle it. At some point, I'll be able to handle it. Or in some environment, I'll be able to handle it. Well, I can't handle it most of the times, but when I go to a birthday party, I can handle it. Well, I can't handle most of the times, but when I go out to eat, I can handle it. Well, I can't handle it most of the times, but during a holiday, I can handle it. I can't handle it Monday through Friday, but on the weekends, I can handle it. I can't handle it when I'm at home, but when I'm when I'm on vacation... I can handle it. I can't handle it when I'm by myself, but when I'm with my friends, I can handle it. I can't handle most of the times that when I've had a bad day, I can handle it. I don't entertain those thoughts. I can't handle it, period. 100% of the time, 100% of my life, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year for as long as I live, I will never be able to handle it. On page 42, this is from Fred's story. If you've not read Fred's story, he was a gentleman in the early days of AA, and he had been introduced to the principles and the the fellowship of AA, and he really didn't think that he was an alcoholic. And he said, you know, self-will and self-knowledge, that's going to fix it. And he went on a business trip, and he thought, you know, maybe I'm making too big of a deal out of this whole alcohol thing. I think I'll have a couple drinks. So he did, and then he had more, and then he had more, and he blacked out. I mean, he didn't even remember coming home. I mean, he was like he woke up in a taxi cab, and um, and it was really bad for him. And he says on page 42, I knew from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. 
I had never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. And it was a crushing blow to me to admit to myself that I was a compulsive overeater. I remember on two different occasions really crying because I was accepting that I couldn't have sugar. I mean, I cried over it. And that was part of a grieving process that I had to go through as part of my admission of defeat, a crushing blow. And Fred says, two of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous came to see me. They grinned, which I didn't like so much, and then asked me if I thought myself alcoholic and if I were really licked this time. I had to concede both propositions. They piled on me heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality such as I had exhibited in Washington was a hopeless condition. They cited cases out of their own experience by the dozen. This process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do the job myself. And that's what happened for me. The process has snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I can ever do the job myself, ever. I am not someone who can muster my willpower and apply my willpower for a while or apply my surrender for a while and then be okay. For me, admitting my powerlessness means conceding to my innermost self that I have an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. I have a body that responds abnormally to my trigger substances, and I have a mind that will obsess about and send me back to those substances. It is because I have admitted my powerlessness that I became available to the real power that has restored me to sanity. This power has enabled me to live free of food obsession, to live to good purpose, to invest in my society, to be of service, and to help other compulsive overeaters recover and experience this incredible program of recovery and have their own lives restored. Until I admitted my powerlessness, I was struggling and suffering trying to figure out and control my condition. In other words, I was trying to exert power over the problem. Today, I accept that my own isolated attempts at power do not work, have never worked, and will never work. I am never going to wake up and not be one. Somebody in this program said that to me one time, and I've never forgotten it. I am never going to wake up and not be one. My admission of powerlessness was the fundamental, non-negotiable starting point in recovery. It was not an easy process. It was not a quick process. But once I went through the admission, my life changed. Because now I had a clear series of actions in front of me, which were steps 2 through 12, to grab onto. It's kind of like... In the circus, there's a circus acrobat in the air, and she has to let go of the first swing that she's on so that she can grab on to the next swing and move forward. If she does not let go of the first swing, she will be pulled back to where she was. But if she lets go of that first swing and grabs on to the second swing, 
she gets to move forward. In recovery, I have had to violate all of my training that said I can assert the power of will over my eating and the power of will over my thinking. Those days are gone. If they ever did exist, they no longer exist for me. The lever inside of me that tells me when to start and when to stop eating is broken. It is permanently broken. And the mechanism in my mind that tells me to think about or not think about food is also broken permanently. My condition is chronic, permanent, and irreversible. And admitting this, conceding to myself that this was true, this act was the essential starting point of my recovery. Thank you for listening, and I will pass. Thank you, Joe, for your riveting account of your personal experience and your thorough description and personal insights regarding step one this morning. Thank you so much for your service. Joe's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. And we'll now transition to questions. If you have a question for Joe, please star one to unmute and identify yourself. Julie M. Julie M. Katie G. Katie G. Deborah M. Deborah. All right, let's begin with those three. Julie M., go ahead. Hi, Joe. Thank you so much for your story. Um, I had gotten to 12, step 12 with my sponsor. And just a few days ago, I picked up food that had previously been yellow light food that I thought I could still manage. And so I am back at step one. I had to tell my sponsee that she needs to find a new sponsor. And I'm struggling with how to connect to a power greater than myself. Because even though I've have had moments where I feel the presence and I, I've had miracles that have shown me the existence, um, I struggle still with knowing for sure and not being in doubt. And someone has shared a strategy that feels really comfortable, but I'm just wondering how you were able to make that happen for you for good. Thank you. Mm. Well, Julie, I would say that you are putting the cart before the horse if you're trying to connect to a power greater than yourself, but you haven't admitted powerlessness yet. That's the first step in recovery is the admission of powerlessness. And until you do that thoroughly and fully and wholeheartedly with everything you have, you won't be able to connect to a power greater than yourself. So you may be putting, it sounds like you're putting pressure on yourself to think that you're supposed to connect to a power greater than yourself when you're not there yet. So my my offer to you is to 
go into the doctor's opinion and read that carefully and apply it. Ask yourself the question, you know, I mean, are you someone who has an allergy of the body? And then read more about alcoholism and ask yourself if you have an obsession of the mind. Gaining access to a power greater than myself did not come until I fully admitted my powerlessness. You know, in the big book, the way they lay it out, they spend time on steps proportionate to the amount of time we have to spend on that step. So more about alcoholism, I mean, there's the doctor's opinion, which is all about the allergy of the body, Then there's more about alcoholism, which is about the obsession of the mind. The doctor's opinion, while it's very important, it's in the front of the book, like it's only a few pages, several pages. More about alcoholism, which is about the obsession of the mind, is 14 pages. By contrast, step six is one paragraph. Step seven is one paragraph. So they are spending time laying out what we need to do very carefully and at length. So I had to really, for me, Julie, I had to really bear down on step one without worrying about the rest of the steps. I had to really look at what, you know, my, am I, am I really powerless? So that's what I would offer you, uh, Julie. Take a load off of yourself Don't pressure yourself to think that you're at step two when you're only at step one right now. Thank you, Julie M. Katie G., your turn, star one to unmute. Hey, hey, Leah, may I be heard? Yes. Hello, good morning, Joe. Thanks for your clarity. It's always a privilege to hear you. I was just hoping you could talk a little bit uh, more. I so relate um, to the issues of quantities and um, love being able to share that for clarity in my own program and with my sponsees and just was hoping you could talk a little bit about, more about your process of quantities and how you stay committed with that today. Thanks. Well, the great, you know, they say, I think it's it's in one of the later chapters. I don't remember if it's, it's either to wives or the family afterward. Um, I think it might be to wives. Um, keep in mind that your your dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. But if you look at that first part of that, your dark past is the greatest possession you have. My history tells me what my problem is. I mean, it doesn't tell me what my problem, but it tells me my experience. It's my history. I mean, I knew viscerally that volume was a problem because I was overweight. I mean, I was chronically overweight. And now that doesn't mean that people who are it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have extra weight on you if volume is a problem. There are people who have um, issues with, with volume who are, who've never been overweight because their metabolism takes care of it, but they're still a compulsive overeater. And then we have um, bulimics, and volume is a problem for them as well. They get rid of it through vomiting. So, but for me... Um, I didn't have that kind of metabolism, and I'm not a bulimic. So for me, the, the, the volume problem was manifest by my extra weight. So I always knew, I mean, I knew viscerally that, that quantity was a problem. What I do today in, as a manifestation of my admission of powerlessness is I have a food plan that has weighed and measured portions because I am not able 
with my own thinking to know by eyesight, by my own unaided eyesight, how much is enough or how much is too is too much. Does that answer your question? A hundred percent, Joe. Thanks. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Katie. Deborah M. Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Deborah M. Your um, description is amazing. Thank you so much. We're talking about step one and powerlessness, and my story is a lot like the lady before about getting all the way sponsoring and then picking up, and the powerlessness of the allergy of the body, but the obsession of the mind that continually tells you, and you're still in step one, that you can pick that up, or it's not even a conscious thought. It's just all of a sudden you've appeared and something is in your hand. So if you're pop, you, you, you can see that you have allergies, but the obsession of the mind is still, it's like racing in step one. Um, is it because I'm really not ready to surrender it? Or maybe you could address that. Thank you. Well, once you have fully admitted powerlessness, which means... I'm not only powerless over the allergy of the body. It's not just that I can't take it into my system. That's the, that's, frankly, that's a, the simpler part of the addiction. That's why they don't spend a lot of time on it in the big book. The greater aspect of my condition is the obsession of the mind. And it says in the big book, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. So if you're abstaining from your foods, but you have not yet admitted your powerlessness of the obsession of the mind, then you haven't fully taken step one. This is not a diet. I mean, Overeaters Anonymous is, is not a, a, a fellowship. Uh, it's not supposed to be dieting with social support, as I've heard say. This is a program of recovery. So you're... Your your mind is racing because you need, first of all, you need to admit your powerlessness, and then you need to go on to the, to the rest of the steps. So if you have admitted powerlessness over both your allergy of the body and your obsession of the mind, it's time to get moving to the next steps right now. So there, the program of recovery, in my experience, is full-bodied. It's very robust. It's also meant to be worked immediately. So right away, you're, you're left, I mean, once you admit your full powerlessness, wow, now you're, uh, now you're SOL, because now what are you going to do? Well, now what you're going to do, if you want sanity, is to move into the rest of the steps. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Deborah. Who else has a question for Joe this morning, star one, to unmute? This is Lauren S. Lauren S. One moment. Anyone else? Uh, Tony W. Tony W. Linda B. Linda. D is in Delta. Thank you. Thank you. 
All right, and we'll go with that. Lauren S. Go ahead with Hi. your question. Hi, this is Lauren S., um, Recovered Compulsive Overeater in New York. And, Joe, um, I was just wondering if you could talk about how you walk a sponsee through step one, like what sort of tools maybe in addition to the big book that you would use to help them to concede to their innermost self because I find that it's not really something I can do for the sponsee, of course, but um, some different ways of talking about it and writing about it sometimes helps. So, yeah, if you could talk about that, that would be great. Thank you. Yes, I have sponsees write their food history. Um, I have them read the AA literature and apply the AA literature to their to their food history because their history is going to tell them everything if they're honest about it, if they're thorough about it. And then they get to hear this language, powerless, you know, losing control, lost the power of choice. They get to read that in the literature and then they get to apply that to their own history. And they do a lot of writing. And we talk about it. Um, we go into the doctor's opinion, and I will select, you know, the um, the paragraphs in the doctor's opinion, and I will have the sponsees read these paragraphs, and then I will ask them, how does that apply to you? For example, um, there's a there's a there's a paragraph in the doctor's opinion. I always have sponsees read this one. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. And I have them focus on the first sentence, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. And sometimes people don't know what the word frothy is, but if you've ever seen someone who's like really either really excited or really angry and they're doing a lot of talking and they're mouth has that saliva buildup on the side, that's frothy. It's froth. That's what froth is. So frothy, meaning like very energized and very impassioned, emotional appeal. Why don't you just push yourself away from the table? Why don't you just have one? Why don't you just not have that tonight? Why don't you just, you know, blah, 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 you know, whatever it is, fill in the blank. And I will ask the sponsee, her experiences of other people making an emotional appeal to her about her eating, and did that ever work? And so we go through paragraphs in the doctor's opinion. I also go through paragraphs with her in more about alcoholism and asking, you know, reading, reading the passages and asking, how does that apply to you? And I ask, and, and I, used to ask, I used to ask it this way, what does that mean to you? And what that did was it opened the door to an academic understanding, and that's not what we're looking for. So now I ask the question, how does this apply to you? Because the sponsee has to take it on into herself. This is not about externalizing it, how does it apply to others, or what do they mean by that intellectually in the book. Is how does it apply to you? In order for the big book to have any meaning for a sponsee, in my view, she has to see herself in it. She has to find herself in here. I had to find myself in here. So that's what I do, Lauren. Does that answer your question?
Hi, sorry, it took a while for me to get unmuted. Yes, it does, Joe. That that helps. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lauren, for the question. And Tony W, your turn. Good morning, and thank you both for your service. Joe, thank you for an excellent presentation. You partly asked, uh, answered my question as you talked about what you do with sponsees. I've been in OA a long time, and I've been with Vision for a while. And I, too, have picked up as I've gotten through, not through step 12, but when I get to the um, fourth step. My question has to do with, in at least in my head, I accept that I have an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. I'm very familiar with uh, the first few chapters. I know it applies to me. But if I am not applying it practically in my life, um, obviously, I don't, there's some part of me that doesn't believe it. I just wondered how you, how it finally sinks in. You, you address some of it, that you did it in layers, but um, I don't know what else to do to get it to the heart. Well, I would say a couple things, Tony. I mean, one is, you know, if someone's drowning in a river, they first of all have to accept that they're drowning, and then they have to grab onto the life raft in front of them. Someone throws them a life, and they got they got to grab on. Mm-hmm. So, I think, you know, sometimes in in cases like this, when I hear you know, experiences such as yours, I wonder if you have a sufficient life raft in front of you to grab onto. And what I mean by that, the the big book is part of our life raft, but we also need a fellowship and we need recovered sponsors. Now, that's my view of it, I mean, in terms of needing a recovered sponsor. Um, I have not been able to to go through this process without other recovered people around me helping me through. I... I know that in the early days of AA, they would send the big book out to a faraway place in the world and someone would read the book and they would do it and they would recover. That was their experience. That's not my experience. Um, So I um, I I would ask you to ask yourself... What kind of structural support do you have and, and what kind of structural support are you willing to make use of in order to make manifest this admission of powerlessness and the working of the, of the subsequent steps? So I'll, I'll throw out some questions, not for you to answer now, but for you to ask yourself. Do you have a recovered sponsor? Do you have a home group? Is your home group carrying the message to newcomers? You know, how are you seeing the process of recovery? Do you see it as something that's sort of an addendum to your life, an attachment to your life? Or do you really see it as the center of your life? Because it has to become the center. Um, and then it's the que- so the question, do you have a recovered sponsor? And then how are you using that sponsor? A tool is only as good as the extent to which we use it. I can have a great hammer sitting in my toolbox, and I can have a nail sitting over there, but if I never go out and if I never pick up that hammer or if I don't use it in the way it is intended, it's not going to work very well. So it's what structural supports do you have available and then to what extent are you using them? 
Um, if you want to call me, we can talk more one-on-one, Tony. I think this would be a good um, uh, a good maybe one-on-one conversation, and I would be very happy to do that with you. So I'll be giving my contact information, and maybe we can follow up that way. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. Linda D. Linda D, star one to unmute. Hi there. Can you hear me now? Yes. Oh, thank you. Sorry for the delay. Joe, um, thank you for that beautiful talk. Uh, Good morning, fellows. This is Linda D, recovered compulsive eater in North Carolina. I love how this program works and how the higher power works because in the first two questions, uh, about two-thirds of what I was going to ask you got answered. I love it. It happens so often. (laughs) But I did want to ask you another question. Um, I am, uh, just to give you a little context, real quick, I'm I'm, I'm in my eighth month of uh, abstinence. Uh, I'm recovered from the compulsion to overeat um, sponsoring. And um, what I have noticed is that uh, I admitted that I was powerless over my physical allergy, finally, after many attempts in other ways, and over my mental obsession for food. But what I've noticed, of course, is that uh, when we uh, move away from those two things, we get I get other mental obsessions, and, and I call it a mental binge, an emotional binge. So now that I'm recovered, I have a 10th step to do, um, and that helps me and keeps me in, away from picking up all the practices that I do ahead of time to try to continue my spiritual fitness help. They say if you relapse, you're six steps into relapse already because you haven't been doing other things. But here's my specific question. Um, for, for a sponsee or, or, or a fellow who has not yet worked through all the steps, when they are experiencing that emotional uh, emotional reaction, the mental binge, uh, what can they do? I know use tools, but how can we help them specifically? Someone calls me and says, I'm in my uh, step two and I am not eating and I'm not thinking about eating or I'm thinking about eating, but I'm so upset and I know I'm so... When they're, when they're in that emotional piece, how do we help someone like that if we can't do a formal 10 step? So just to sum up, the question is, person calls us, they finally pick up the phone, I'm upset, I'm emotional, They don't have a 10th step yet. They're not recovered. How can we help them the best? You know, Linda, um, I really would like to keep today's focus on step one, admission of powerlessness, but I would welcome a call from you, and we can talk one-on-one about your question. Is that okay? That's that's absolutely great. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. Who else has a question for Joe this morning on step one? Star one to unmute. Great opportunity. Kathy K. Kathy, I got you. I didn't get the voice before, Kathy. Camille. Camille, okay. Anyone else? Carlisa C. Carlisa C. Raquel. Raquel. All right, let's go with that. Camille. You're up. 
Hi there. Thank you so much, Joe. Um, would you just talk a little bit more for me about volume and powerlessness? I have been in OA for oh, over 25 years, and my current experience is volume and salads. And it does for me exactly what a dozen donuts used to do for me 25 years ago. And, um, and I'm just beginning to admit how powerless I am over that. So I heard you talk about weighing and measuring. Do you weigh and measure your salads? I weigh and measure everything I put in my mouth. Okay, talk to me more. Just talk to me more about powerlessness and volume. Could you do that, please? Well, I'm powerless to decide how much is enough and how much is, you know, how much is enough, how much is too much. I mean, my history has shown me that. Um, my history has shown me that I will binge on a healthy piece of chicken. I mean, a, a piece of chicken, like I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll eat a half a chicken. Um, my history has shown me that I will binge on baked potatoes. My history has shown me that I will binge on salad. If that's the only thing that I've got, I will binge on that. So my history has shown me that. And so I accept my history. I accept that fact. And it took a lot of... And, you know, we don't have the time today for me to go into the all the experiences that I had of, of trial and error and um, trying to pick myself up and falling back down again and um, trying to contain it on my own. And I'll, I'll tell you this, too. Um, when I came to Overeaters Anonymous, my addiction was at a certain level. And, and while I was in OA, my addiction got worse because that's what addictions do. And the addiction gets worse whether I'm in recovery or not. It gets progressive whether I'm in recovery or not. So if I were to ever go back to it, I would pick up as if I never left off. So it, many, so it's, it would be many, many years worse. And so that, that's what was happening while I was in Overuse Anonymous. I was doing the best I could with the abstinence education that I was getting at the time, but it, it, it eventually would break down. And I got to the point where I just had to realize this isn't working. And then I was presented with a very structured method of having a food plan, which for me was the manifestation of my admission of powerlessness. And so that's that's where I got to, uh, Camille. It, it just, um, I, I had had enough pain and enough falling down with attempts to control it on my own, even after coming into Overeaters Anonymous, that I became willing to surrender to a food plan that was weighed and measured, not because I wanted anybody's approval, not because I wanted a sense of social belonging, not because I thought it was a cool thing to do, not because I thought it would give me status inside Overeaters Anonymous. It was a manifestation of my admission of powerlessness. Thank you, Camille, for your question. Joe, would I be able to call you to talk more about this? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks, Camille. Kathy Kay. Thank you, Leah, for your service. 
and thank you, Joe. It's really, really good to hear you today. Uh, I also have a question about food, um, two questions, actually. One is, do you require that your sponsees have a weighed and measured food plan? Um, because I've had many people come to me um, not wanting to do that. I do weigh and measure, and I'm just wondering whether it's something I should require or only suggest strongly, so I'd be interested in your feedback on that. And then the other one is, um, have you found that you've had to change your food plan as you get older? Because it's something I'm thinking about right now. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, in answer to your first question, I am a very low-bottom compulsive overeater. I mean, I guess I, I don't know if that language is even helpful to use, but I, that's how I see it. I mean, my, my addiction, it just it got so bad, as my story uh, reflects, that I have found that it's important for my recovery to sponsor people who are also really, really bad off, like lowest of the low, like we have nowhere else to go. I mean, it's really, really, really bad. I need to sponsor other people who are really bad off um, because I figure, this is just me, if someone isn't, as progressed as that, there's lots of other people who can sponsor them. But I'm like, um, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know if this is, I don't know if I want to say this, the word, it's not a specialty. It's just what I need to do. I need to do this for my recovery. I need to follow this particular kind of a food plan because of my admission of powerlessness over the seriousness of my condition. So I need to sponsor other people who are also that bad off. And so the people who ask me to sponsor them are willing to also weigh and measure their food because they at least have a, a basic desperation uh, to get this kind of help. So I'm not forcing anything down anybody else's throat about what they need to do. They're willing to do it because they see themselves also as really bad off. So that's my answer to your first question. In terms of changing food plan, yeah, food plans are going to change. I mean, that's true for, I think that's true for anybody. Food plans will ebb and flow um, based on at any variety of factors. Age might be one of them. Activity level might be one of them. Development of a, of a medical or health condition might be one of them. So, yes, my food plan has changed over time. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Kathy. Okay. Carlisa C., Thank you for your service, Leah, and thank you for the speaker today. Uh, my question is this. Um, could you, you've spoken indirectly about this, but would you speak more directly, if, if you believe this is true, between uh, the connection between rigorous honesty or honesty as a spiritual prim principle and powerlessness? Well, I think they're one and the same, Carlisa. I mean, my... I am honest when I say that I am powerless over food and that my life had become unmanageable. When I make the admission to myself, I'm telling the truth to myself about what I'm facing here. So I don't, 
I don't see a difference between honesty and the admission of powerlessness. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the last part of what you said. I was unmuting. I don't see a difference between honest between practicing honesty and admitting powerlessness. I think they're one and the same. Okay. I think so too. Um and I think it's hard to hear that if as as anything other than an admonishment or like a discipline for people sometimes, especially me. I mean, I didn't want to concede to my innermost self that I was a compulsive eater. I wanted to be anything other than that. But it was when I was able to pivot toward, well, maybe I am one of those, that I started to change. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, and I think just to piggyback on that, then I think it's very important. It's essential that we be really upfront with people who come into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous and especially up front with anyone who has asked us to sponsor them, to say, if you're someone who believes that you can exert any level of control over your eating, we don't have a program for you. If you're someone who is looking for a diet with social support, we don't have a program for you. If you're looking for a sponsor who's going to accompany you while you go on a journey of controlled eating, we don't have a program for you. But if you're someone who is at your wit's end, you're at the end of your rope, you're crying inside, desperate and screaming for help, you can't stand the way you're living, you can't stand the way you're thinking, you can't take it anymore, and oh my God, and you're in a place of, oh my God, somebody please help me. I'll do anything. We've got a program for you. So that'd be my answer to that. Thanks, Carlisa C. Raquel, it's your turn to ask a question. Leia D. Leia D, hold on. You'll Hello. Be the next Can you hear Raquel? me? Yes. Okay. Your question. Hello. Yes, Raquel. Yes. Oh. Well, uh, Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Joe, so much. I just wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you for for really saying it the way it is. Step one, without that, there's nothing else, and, and my wondering all the time why I cannot help so many people who come and ask for help is that, you know, it comes down to it, that if you cannot concede to your innermost self, just what you said now, the, the last the last answer. Thank you so much. And uh, we talked already before, and I'll be glad to talk to you again. So thank you, and right on. And I pass. Thanks, Raquel. Leah D., uh, you wanted to ask a question. Anyone else want to ask a question this morning? Good morning. Thank you so much. Good morning. Can I be heard? Hold, hold, yeah, hold on, Leah. Let me just see if there's others as well. Thank Anyone you. Anyone else want to ask a question this morning? Great opportunity. Ginny L. Ginny L. from Virginia. Is that Jen from Virginia? No, Patty. Patty from Virginia, okay. Jamie W., San Diego. Gladys L. Vicki D. Did you hear me, Jane B.? Okay, Vicki, I did hear Jane. And Vicky, I didn't catch your initial to your last name. 
It's D. Okay, got it. Thank you. Okay. Did you hear me, Leah, Gladys? I did, Gladys. I did. You're on the list, certainly. Leah D., go right ahead with your question, please. Can I be heard? You can. Um, Good morning. My name is Leah D., recovered from Brooklyn. Um, Thank you, Joe, so much. Number one, the tears are flowing and my neck hurts from going up and down. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Wow, you've got my story and you, you, you were eloquent. And I want to be selfish enough to say the last part where you just shared, the words, I tend to forget words. If you'd be willing to type that up, boy, I'd even pay for that. That was amazing. That told it like it is. That should be part of our literature. And what I want to ask you today is um, I really listen to Joe and Charlie about my responsibility on sponsoring and sharing. And sometimes I have trouble carrying the message when the sponsees think they're powerless and they're still slipping and sliding. And I don't always know where to take them and how to get them there and to share my strength, hope, and experience. And I know I'm not God. I know that's not my power. And I sometimes don't know if they should have a day or two of recovery. They should jump back into the steps where they should go. I just wanted to take on some good, positive, orderly direction on um, carrying the message in that respect. So if you could do that, I'd really appreciate hearing where you are in that. Thank you. Well, Leah, I think today's topic is on powerlessness. You're talking about step 12. Um, So why don't you give me a call and we can talk about it one-on-one. Sounds good, Leah. Thank you. Ginny, is there a Ginny L? Did I hear that properly? Hi, this is Ginny L in South Carolina. Joe, thank you so much. You have told my story. I have been in OA for 51 years. I have, uh, I started in California and I've moved to South Carolina now, and we, I live in an area where OA has started and failed so many times, and I have started and failed so many times. I was recovered for a while and decided that it was too hard to do the daily disciplines and slowly watched myself go back to comp- compulsive overeating and am now so aware of my powerlessness I guess I mostly want to ask, is there any hope for me? Thank you. Ginny, I think there's hope for you if you take step one. And I've seen many people, you know, come and go, uh, slip and fall, and then come and grab on. That was my experience. I mean, I had relapses and slips and, and you name it, and then I grabbed on. And then I... And then I and I did the footwork, and I, and I continue to do the footwork, and I have recovery today. So I don't think it's ever hopeless for any of us. That's my view of it. And I think what you shared is very instructive in that you've been in OA for 51 years, but the chronological time doesn't mean anything. Chronological time means nothing to this addiction, absolutely nothing. It doesn't care how many times I've been to a meeting. It doesn't care how many years I've been a member of Overeaters Anonymous. It doesn't care the chronological time that I've been abstinent. It doesn't care. That's, an, that's, a, that's part of the essence of, I think, admitting powerlessness is that we have a condition that is not subject to this thing called chronological time. So, um, yes, I believe there's hope for you, Ginny, and I would throw this out in case 
in case this is a, a thought of yours, that if you are thinking that you should have it down by now because you've been in a way for 51 years, throw that in the garbage. Your, your membership in a way, and that's another thing that the addiction does not care about. It does not care about the fact of my membership in a way. Any of us gets to be a member. We've got the third tradition. Any of us can walk into an OA meeting at any time, anywhere in the world, and we will be welcomed. And that's as it should be, and thank goodness for our third tradition. But the third tradition does not guarantee us recovery from the addiction we have. So, again, I would would, um, invite you, if you're so inclined, Jenny, you can call me and we can talk more about your personal journey um, and and how to get to this admission, um, if you would like. Thank you very much, Jenny L. Patty C. Thank you. Thank you, Leah, for your service, and thank you, Joe. Um, I actually have only been involved with OA for probably, I would say, three and a half years. And um, when I came into the rooms, I I, I learned the tools. I, I lost some weight. But what I was there for was I wanted to have this change in my mind that because I I couldn't manage life, but I saw that I would pick up the food. I had been overweight all my life, and I'm just barely learning, you know, really more and more about this disease that I have, my addiction. And um, what could you say to me um, to... Give me more inspiration. I mean, I'm willing to go. I'm like, my new sponsor has asked me to give up bread. Okay, I've given up bread. My disease, I want to eat high fat foods. And that's, you know, and I've omitted all of that. And yeah, I've lost weight and I've worked the steps to a certain point and then I slip. So um, now I'm using the phone, calling people, trying to talk to, more uh, sponsors, just to get get more information. I have the desire because I want to get out. Of, I, I want to be able to live happy, joyous, and free. With that, I pass. And thank you so much, Joe. Well, Patty, you mentioned a couple of times losing weight. That is entirely beside the point. We are not here to lose weight. And so that may be part of the issue that you're having. Um, you said you learned the tools and lost some weight. We're not here to learn tools. We're not here to lose weight. Um, so we're, we're here to have a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery, and then we take that renewed spirit out, out into our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. That's what we're here for. But we can't get there unless we take step one. So I think you're still at the point, from what I'm hearing, of needing to, to fully take step one. Um, you're giving up bread has really should have nothing to do with what your sponsor is telling you. You're giving up bread. If you're going to give up bread, it's because you're powerless over eating it. If you have an allergy of the body to bread, if you have an allergy of the body and you're admitting that and, you, and you're admitting it, then giving up bread is a natural step to take as the result of your admission of powerlessness. 
If we give up foods, but we have not admitted powerlessness over those foods, it's not going to take. It's not going to last. It's going to feel like a diet. In OA, it might feel like a diet with social support. That's not what we're here for. We had to concede to our innermost selves that we were that we were compulsive overeaters. This is the first step in recovery. It's not about an admission to your sponsor. It's not about obeying a sponsor. It's not about complying. It's not about placating. It's about admitting to yourself. You know, when I when sponsees when I'm first, especially when I'm first working with sponsees and they'll commit a specific food, and it might sound like it might be an absent food, but I'm not sure, I will ask them, have you ever binged on that? Because the question is, what is the history? What's the history of you and the food? That's the question to ask yourself, Patty. What is your history with bread? What is your history with certain kinds of bread? Because this is about you. First and foremost, it's about you, Patty. It's about your recovery, your life, your, you know, needing to or wanting to be relieved of this curse. I mean, Dr. Bob, you know, he says, you know, it's been, it's been most wonderful to be relieved of the terrible curse with which I was afflicted. So um, I, I, as I see it, you need to drill down into your history and determine what your trigger foods are. And then you use a sponsor to help you manifest the actions as the result of your admission of powerlessness. And, and have her, and, and she can help you to come to the admission. She can be an aide. She's an assistant. She's a tool. But, but your recovery does not reside within what your sponsor says. Thank you very much, Patty C. Thank you very much. Janie W., Jamie W, star one to unmute. Um, I don't know if you said Jane B. I think Jamie W, San Diego. Oh, she's in. Jane B, I do have you on the list, but not at this point. Thank you. Thanks for your patience. Jamie W, go ahead with your question, please. Yeah, Jamie W, San Diego. May I be heard? Yes. Newly recovered for today. A previous question mentioned other manifestations. And uh, first, thank you, Joe, for your share, learning a lot. Do I understand step one correctly in that I need to admit powerlessness over any manifestation of my mental obsession, not just admission over powerlessness over the bodily obsession? Why I ask that is because for me, other manifestations of compulsion are coming up. I'm chewing gum obsessively. I'm drinking water. I'm, I'm drinking tea obsessively. What are your thoughts? Well, you can apply the same questions to those things as you apply to other other foods. You know, do you get excited when you eat the gum? Or do you obsess about the gum? Um, and you just can apply the same criteria to those substances as you do with other food substances. And then, again, conceding to your innermost self. You know, that's the whole thing, Jamie, is conceding to your innermost self and it's you know if these are if these are problems and if you're obsessing about them, this is actually a, not an uncommon phenomenon in food addiction recovery where we give up the food and then other things will come up, like you know sugary drinks and gum and mints and caffeine and stuff like that for some people that those things erupt as problems, 
And then we have the opportunity to say, hey, these things were not a problem, but now they're becoming a problem. Um, sometimes that happens with specific foods as well. Sometimes you can go for a while eating, and this happened for me. And I'll give you an example. Um, I was asking it for a while, and I was eating roasted nuts. They were raw, and then I roasted them. And they were not a problem. I mean, I, I enjoyed them. They were, I, didn't, I wasn't obsessing. And then they became a problem. And I remember the day sitting, I'm, I'm chewing the, um, the roasted um, nut, and I started thinking about a type of nut butter that I used to binge on. And it's like, I can't do this. This, is, this, is a prob- this has become a problem. And I now am powerless over the effect that roasted nuts have on me. So I don't do roasted nuts anymore. I do raw nuts, but not. And there are certain nuts that I, certain nuts I've had to give up too. I've had to give up, you know, a, you know, not a lot of things, but a few things over time that became a problem. And it doesn't matter. This is another thing. It doesn't matter if I think it's fair. If I have an allergy of the body, an obsession of the mind over it, that means I'm powerless over it, and that means I can't afford to have it on my food plan. So I have I have given up blueberries, bing cherries, um, almonds, and at first I was kind of pissed off at that, like like you know, because I wanted to say this is so unfair. I have given up all this other stuff, and now I have to give this up too. This is so unfair, and I kind of threw a little temper tantrum. But once the temper tantrum was over and I accepted it, you know, I decided that whatever I give up in food is going to come back to me tenfold in some other way. And that's, in fact, what has happened. So that would be my answer to that. Thank you, Janie W. And, Joe, I just want to check at this point. We're almost at 10 a.m. Eastern time. I have three more people on the list. How, what's your timing like? I'm good with time. Okay, okay, so we'll complete the three here. Very good. Thank you. Gladys F., please. Good morning. Uh, Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, good morning, um, Gladys. Uh, I have a, my question is, um, I didn't hear all of the segment, but I was just wondering if you could uh, share a little bit. I don't know if you're sharing on that part, but share a little bit about the second part of step one, the unmanageability, because sometimes, you know, it's like easy for me, like, okay, I get that part, but the second part, um, the unmanageability of my life, what does that entail? Well, step one really is one idea. Um, We admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Our lives are unmanageable because we are powerless over food. We don't have to figure out a separate category called unmanageability. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I'm when I'm you know when I'm compelled when I'm compelled to do things like binge all day at work on the vending machine. This and this this is true. I was I was at work on a Saturday, and I binged all day on vending machine food because I had to because I had no choice, no power, binging all day, miserable and suffering. I call Walgreens, do you have syrup of Ipecac? I had to call Walgreens. Yes, I have syrup. Yeah, how late up in 10? Great. Get off work at 7.30, compelled 
to go to Walgreens, get the syrup of Ipecac, read the instructions, drink the um, the required amount, and then vomit my brains out for the next 20 minutes, that's pretty darn unmanageable. Now, I'm not a bulimic. That was my one foray into bulimia. Um, but that showed me how progressive, you know, wow, I had never done that before. And that was really awful. I mean, that's unmanageable. When I'm an athlete in high school, I was a figure skater, I was a track runner, I ran cross-country, I was on a cross-country ski team, very active as a teenager, and 20 years later, I can't walk across a floor because I'm so overweight? That's unmanageable. When, when I am suffering inside because I'm worried about my health and I feel so guilty and I'm laying in bed at night and I can hear my heart, I can feel my heart pumping and I feel so guilty because my heart is having to pump for this well over 200 pound body and it was never intended to have to support 200 pounds. And I'm laying in bed and I'm guilty, I'm so guilty because I've eaten all this food that I know my body is having to go to all this work to process that food at night when my body is supposed to be doing other work at night, like repairing all the internal organs and all the work that the body does during sleep, that's unmanageable. When I'm sitting at my desk and I'm really thirsty and all of a sudden I get a panic attack because I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm really, really thirsty, Um, I know that that's a symptom of adult-onset diabetes, and I knew that my obesity put me at risk of adult-onset diabetes, that's unmanageable. So my life is unmanageable because I'm powerless over food. That'd be my answer to that, Gladys. Thank you. Thanks, Gladys. Vicki D. Hi, thanks, Leah. Um, Vicki D. from Vermont. Joe, thank you so much. I've heard just such, so many great things. About powerlessness, I just wondered, and I'm a relapser. I'm, I'm abstinent now for maybe five days. I wonder what you consider sharing about the constant voice of, yeah, right, like you're going to get it this time? And how to, sh- what in this in these early days of of abstinence to just shut that voice up? I mean, what, what, what do you suggest? Well, Vicki, you can't shut the voice off. That's one of the aspects of powerlessness. You can't do it. So going to look for the power of how to shut your voice off um, is not going to work if you're a compulsive overeater. It's been my experience uh, with myself and with people that I sponsor that in the first days and months of abstinence, you need a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of reinforcement from other recovered people because the ego is going to want to pull away at you, and that's what your ego is doing. So you need other people pumping in different kinds of thinking. In you know, and, and I didn't say pumping in, but they're they're pumping it, but you're receiving it. Other kinds of thinking. So one of the practical actions that you can take as a manifestation of your admission of powerlessness is to admit that you can't handle this thinking on your own and you're going to call a bunch of people. Call other, okay. call other recovered people and say, this is what's going on. How do I, you know, I want your thinking. I want your recovered thinking. 
Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Jane B. Uh, thank you, Jane B. Uh, in Florida. Thank you so very much, uh, Joe. I really enjoy. I'm going to have to listen to this over and over. Um, thank you, Leah. Um, I um I don't know where I am right now, but I, I admit I have admitted that I need a weight and measured food plan. I've done that for years, and I've never been able to get away from it, which tells me I'm pretty chronic and I don't know how to eat normal. However, it, it says to get very busy with the steps. I had gone through the steps. I wasn't obviously living in 10, 11, and 12, and I did pick up. Obviously, I didn't take step one. But when you say grab onto step one, how long, um, in my situation right now, I, I'm working really hard on step one with my sponsor, building up days. However, I, I am wondering and i i do want to go through the steps again um i i'm finding right now that i've been seeking out some spiritual outside help and it's been helping my thinking um the reason i'm bringing it up is it's not a substitute for step two but i have found that i have never been able to hold on for very long when and if, even if I've had recovery before, you can go through the steps 20 times, and if you haven't taken step one, it's like you've never taken the steps. Um, so how desperate, how long should one stay on, like me, on step one? And is there a rush to get through the steps again, having, having being the fact that I had thoroughly done my fourth step and done my men's but that doesn't mean anything to me. I just was wondering what you think. What what you think? You say grab on to step one, and and then desperately work the rest of the program. I just was wondering. Thank how, you, Jane. Um, yeah, I'm sorry about repeating. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I said grab on to step one. I think I I said once you admit step one, then you grab on to the rest of the steps. Okay. Um, and I there's no chronological time frame for step one, although I, in my experience and observation with sponsees and others, I believe step one can be taken quickly um, because, our, because we, and the, the more desperate you are, the, the better it is, because the more desperate you are, the more of an incentive you have to get to the admission and then move on, because you want out of your, you, know, you want out of your pain. Um, you said a couple of things. Um, you've gone through the steps and you want to go through the steps. Going through the steps isn't something that comes out of a want. It's not something that we, we want to do. It's something that is required of us. We must go through the steps. That is the nature of an addiction. It doesn't give us a choice. And the nature of recovery is it doesn't give us a choice. This is not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. And so if you are someone who believes, and I want to say this for everyone else on the line as well, if you think you have to want to do the steps, you know, you can let go of that right now. You don't have to want to do the steps. But you do have to have a deep, deep desire to get out of the misery that you're in. That is a requirement. Desperation, misery, and suffering is a requirement. Um, you said you're working really hard at step one. 
Uh, step one is not something we work really hard. None of the steps are anything we have to work really hard at. They are, they are simple. They are humbling. They are simple and humbling and effective and powerful. They're not something we have to work really hard at. Being in a classroom and figuring out a math problem might be something we have to work really hard at. Or reading a dense piece of research literature, that may be something we have to work really hard at. Maybe scrubbing the floor because there's an intractable stain on the floor. You've got to work really hard at getting that stain. That is, this is not about working hard. It's about facing and accepting reality. I hope that helps, Jane. If not, call me. One, we can do a one-on-one. Thank you, Jane B. All right, this will be our final invitation for questions on step one. If you have a question for Joe, star one to unmute. Identify yourself, please. Judy K. Judy K. Wendy M. Wendy M. Ellen E. Ellen E. Angela C. Angela C. Julie F. Julie F. Sharon C. Sharon C. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Judy K. Thank you. Um, thank you, Lee, and thank you, Joe, uh, for your wonderful share. My question is this. <clears throat> if my heart is not completely in surrender, you know, and I don't want to go into detail about that because of the time here, but so if I don't feel like I want to surrender in every area of my life, does that mean I haven't taken step one completely? No, step one does not ask us to surrender every, every area of our life. What step one says is we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. If you're wondering about the essence of step one, read the doctor's opinion in the big book. Read more about alcoholism. It doesn't say anything in those chapters about surrendering every area of your life. Step one is, is, step one is simple. It's not necessarily going to be comfortable, but it's simple. It just okay, asks isn't two, it, it unmanaged? Just let me finish. It, it asks two questions. Are you powerless of the allergy of the body? Are you powerless of the obsession of the mind? That's it. Go ahead. Okay, then maybe I'm misinterpreting step one. Isn't the unmanageability about our whole life being unmanageable? Well, our life is unmanageable because we are powerless over food. As I had um, answered Gladys's question earlier about unmanageability, we don't have to figure out the unmanageability of other areas of our life. Our lives are unmanageable because of what we are compulsed to do with food. Okay, thank you, Joe. Thanks, Judy. Wendy M. Yes, hi. Good morning. This is Wendy M. from Colorado, recovered. Thank God. Joe, thank you so much. This is an amazing talk. I will listen to it a lot and have my sponsees do the same. So bless you for your work today, your service. Um, So my question is, how do you practice either daily, weekly, probably moment by moment, but how do you, what, what do you do to like keep in fit spiritual condition with regard to step one? 
How do you practice step one on a daily basis? Oh, am I not unmuted? I'm thinking about my answer because um, I don't stay in fit spiritual condition by practicing step one. Keeping in fit spiritual condition is later steps. So I've already taken step one. I've already admitted it. So I don't have to readmit it every single day. I don't readmit my powerlessness. I've already admitted it. Because I've admitted it and grabbed onto the other steps and worked them and continue to work 10, 11, and 12, and but particularly 12, you know, my, my emphasis is on how am I engaging steps 11 and 12, really mostly 12. That's where I need to be living today. I need to be living in the two action steps of step 12. What are those? What does step 12 say? Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and practice these principles in all of our affairs. In order for me to live there, I have to have gone through the uh, 11 steps, including admission of powerlessness, including admitting that I'm powerless over, you know, my allergy the body obsession of the mind. So I follow a food plan every day, not because I'm re-admitting my powerlessness, but because I've already admitted it. It's done. I don't have to redo that. Um, I've already admitted my powerlessness, so I accept that I am the kind of person who I need to call a sponsor every day, and I need to be sponsoring. And I need to be, you know, I needed to go through that inventory, and I continue to inventory disturbances because I'm powerless. Mm-hmm. So I need to do the review of my day at night, which is step 11. It's not step 10. It's step 11. If you look in the big book, um, the review of the day um, is step 11 because of all the steps I've taken up to that point, beginning with step one. I hope that answers your question. Thank you so much. Thanks, Wendy. Ellen E. Can you hear me? This is Ellen E. Yes. Thank you. Thank you both so much for your service. It's been, I've, this is my first time on this particular meeting, and I'm so glad that I came on. <clears throat> Excuse me. My question for you, Joe, is for a newcomer, <clears throat> what would you share with them when they've taken the first step and um, they are now in situations, though, where um, there's food behaviors involved? So especially like over the holidays when you're with well-intentioned family members who are suggesting, oh, we'll just take one bite. It's not going to hurt you. Um, How did you, um, what do you tell your sponsees regarding that? Thank you. Sure. Well, then there's a practical element of how we manifest our admission of step one. And one of those practical elements is the language we use when we're in social situations and someone offers us something we don't eat. You know, and it can be as simple as no thank you. No, thank you, I don't care for any. Or, um, no, thank you, I have food allergies. Or, no, thank you, I don't eat sugar. Keep it brief. Thank you, Ellen. Angela C. Good morning. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Um, I've been in program now in OA for uh, approaching eight years this month. And... um, 
I was able to be abstinent for a couple of months and then I'll have a binge and then I'll be abstinent for a couple of months and then have a binge. And then someone from another state came to our meeting and I went out of the box and asked her to sponsor me and she said, maybe it's something that you're eating. So my problem is definitely volume, definitely volume. Um, I can be so on program with my food. I weigh and measure my breakfast and lunch and then when it comes to my dinners, for some reason... I don't weigh and measure. I don't understand. I, I I don't know if I'm not giving up the control. I just don't understand. Can you help me? Well, you said, Angela, that you're able to be abstinent for a couple months, and that, that's a problem right there because abstinence is not an answer to our problem. Um, abstinence is, you know, if it's just abstinence, I mean, that's just a diet and fancy trappings. It's just kind of a diet and enough, by another name, frankly. So we hear the word abstinent in, you know, abstinence in OA, but we probably don't get, we perhaps don't get the context for abstinence the way we need. The first step in recovery is not abstinence. The first step in recovery is we have to fully concede to our innermost selves that we are compulsive overeaters. That is the first step in recovery. That's what it says on page 30 and more about alcoholism. So if the first thing that you think you have to do for your recovery is to be abstinent, you're right. You're going to go back into the food, and you will continue to go back into the food. And anyone who believes that abstinence is their claim to fame is going to go back into the food or they're going to be a raving lunatic while they're abstinent. Because, frankly, abstinence is the problem. I mean, because I'm trying to control it. And when I try to control the food, and it sounds like you do too, when you're trying to control it, then, you're, then the real problems emerge. I mean, then the real, then the real you know, the, that's the obsession of the mind, explodes. And we can't tolerate the obsession of the mind. We've got to medicate so we go back and we medicate with food. So I would say, Angela, that you don't have to understand what you do have to do if you're a compulsive overeater and if you want recovery is you have to accept your condition. And you may need help with some suggestions for how to go about accepting your condition. And that may mean going to, you know, you might not yet have gone into your food history. I mean, you've had, you've lived the history, but maybe you haven't gone back and really looked like a detective. What was I doing with food? What kind of food was I eating? How much was I eating? Um, Because you've come to Overeaters Anonymous, I'm assuming, Angela, in pain. I'm assuming that you're in some kind of pain or you wouldn't be here. Oh, for sure. I'm assuming you've tried other methods to get control of your eating problem because almost all of us have. We've we've tried we've tried the diet the the paid weight loss programs. We've tried the surgeries. We've tried the pills. We've tried the fasting. We've tried other you know spiritual methods, and they haven't worked. And so we come here. So when we come here. I think, whether we are conscious about it or not, I think maybe even subconsciously we really are ready for something completely different. So I would, I would suggest that you go into your food history and really go into, I mean, really go into detail. 
go into as much detail as you possibly can and go ahead and and when the pain and I think this is going to happen too when the pain of your history hits you let it hit you Angela let it hit you like a big a big ball of something hitting you right in the gut and let yourself if this happens for you fall on the floor and sob and sob and sob and sob and sob and let yourself if it hits you if you're called on to do this go into your bedroom and pound the hell out of your bed in anger and grief and fighting it and you don't want it to be true but it's true it's true it's true and you're letting the truth hit you and hit you and hit you and hit you and hit you let yourself go through that angela that is your admission to yourself, you are conceding to your innermost self that you are a compulsive overeater. And if you don't need to do those physical things, totally fine. But if you're someone, like I'm Irish Italian, like I, like I feel my emotions really big. I have found those kinds of things to be useful. But hey, maybe you're a quieter type and you just need to sit in the quietness of your own living room and you're letting the sun come in or the moonlight come in and you're by yourself and you're letting it hit you. And it's a very quiet overwhelming oh my god this is who i am oh my god i am moving from circle one into circle two i am accepting i've tried to be in circle one i want to be in circle i've tried to be there i've tried so hard to be in circle one as a normal eater oh my god i'm in circle two and i'm feeling it i'm moving i'm making the migration let yourself go through that. This is not an intellectual exercise. It's an internal shift in your identity. Can I and call when, you with And when you've done that, Angela, when you've got when you've done that, then you will be ready to get help constructing an abstinent food plan. Yes, you can call me. Can I call you with my history? Thank you, Angela. Thank you. Yes, Sounds like the answer is yes, yes. Julie F. Julie F. Hi, this is Julie F. Um, I, very quickly, my history, I recently um, had a year and a half of continuous abstinence and um, felt that I was a recovered compulsive overeater. I was sponsored by the big book and felt like, you know, I was, well, and whatever, I was doing okay or whatever, I am still, I mean, I know it happened and I embrace it and I'm abstinent today. Um, that happened December 21st. But it is beyond my realm of thinking the quantity um, of food that I took in, the amounts of food I took in, and how savagely I could eat. I'm back at step one, um, and I I don't know or how to reconcile in my head what happened, you know. Um, so I, that's just kind of where I'm at. I'm back at step one. I totally get that I'm powerless. Um, I've come back scared, you know, um, shaken, whatever, desperate. Um, and I think one thing that I have realized is I got cocky and complacent, um, 
you know, and I don't think I willfully ever admitted either one of those, but there was a place within me that felt like I got this, you know, I got this. And if I guess if I've got this, then I don't, you know, (laughs) I'm not a compulsive overeater. I don't know. Can you talk about that where you do feel like you do have the recovery, but um, like a man that will grow, not grow new legs, I I don't know how to kind of reconcile that, and I'm not sure if you're getting the question. Yeah, I do get the question, Julie, and I want to read something out of um, More About Alcoholism. Um, this is on page 32. A okay. man of 30... A man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He was very nervous in the morning after these bouts and quieted himself with more liquor. He was ambitious to succeed in business but saw that he would get nowhere if he drank at all. Once he started, he had no control whatever. He made up his mind that until he had been successful in business and had retired, he would not touch another drop. An exceptional man, he remained bone dry for 25 years and retired at the age of 55 after a successful and happy business career. Then he fell victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic has, that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. Out came his carpet slippers and a bottle. In two months, he was in a hospital, puzzled and humiliated. He tried to regulate his drinking for a while, making several trips to the hospital meantime. Then, gathering all his forces, he attempted to stop altogether and found he could not. Every means of solving his problem which money could buy was at his disposal. Every attempt failed. Though a robust man at retirement, he went to pieces quickly and was dead within four years. This this case contains a powerful lesson. Most of us have believed that if we remained sober for a long stretch, we could therefore drink normally. But here is a man who at 55 years found he was just where he had left off at 30. We have seen the truth demonstrated again and again. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we are in a short time as bad as ever. If we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. And, Julie, what I would encourage you to do is go back and read that story and replace the facts with your facts. Most of us, you know, hey, did Julie believe that after a year and a half of abstinence, you could therefore eat normally? I mean, that to me, that's what this sounds like. And you're baffled and you're wondering and you're trying to reconcile it is because if you're trying to control the eating. Because if you think that a year and a half of abstinence is going to get you anything, obviously it didn't because you went back into the food, so it failed. Your year and a half of abstinence, and I don't mean to be, I don't want to come across as attacking, but I feel very passionate about that we tell the truth to each other, Julie, about what we are facing here. We are not facing a condition that's going to be solved with abstinence, no matter how long the abstinence is. A year and a half sounds like, oh, hey, that's kind of impressive. The addiction doesn't care about that as you yourself have experienced. So, um, in, in, and again, if you want to call me, we can talk more, you know, one-on-one. But I want to really emphasize this, Julie, and for everyone on the line, abstinence is not an answer to our problem. Mm. Abs- abstinence, that's a trick. That's a trick that our ego grabs onto. And sometimes our meetings grab onto. Sometimes the fellowship grabs onto. Be abstinent. Because abstinence without admission of powerlessness is going to get you back into the food, which I think you have experienced. Absolutely. Thank you, Thank Julie. You. Thank you. And our last question for the morning comes from Sharon C. Sharon. 
Sharon, star one to unmute. All right, well, perhaps she had to get off the line. Thank you, everyone, who asked questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Joe, for your generous service this morning and your beautiful presentation. It was captivating, to say the least. Thank you very much. We're going to close today. Thank you. We're going to close from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.